Oh, it's great to, uh, great to see you tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at the, that Jeremiah passage, so it would be great if you had that uh, before you. Uh, but I'm going to pray again as we look at God's word. Father, we give you great thanks that we can meet together as your people. And we pray now as you look at your word. Father, we pray you'd help us to understand it. But more than that, Father, you would shape and change us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We just read from chapter 37 of Jeremiah, and in fact we're looking at three chapters tonight, so 37, 38 and 39, so there's quite a lot of ground to uh, cover. Uh, We'll do our best, I guess, with what we've got, Uh, but we're not going to be able to look at all of it in detail, so I just really want to encourage you to go home and to uh, read through these chapters uh, by yourself, Uh, but don't stop there because actually you need to keep reading uh, on to 40 through to 45. We're not going to look at those chapters in our sermon series, uh, but great for you to uh, read through this kind of very exciting story, very dramatic, uh, about what happens after the fall of Jerusalem and the sort of final days, I guess, of, uh, for Jeremiah. Uh, so it'd be great for you to, uh, to read that through. Uh, but as I said, we're going to start in chapter 37. So great if you could, uh, could look there. And you would have seen from our reading, the chapter begins with this whole long list of names. Uh, if you're new to our series, you might think, what is going on here? Who is Zedekiah, Josiah, Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar? Who are all these people? Uh, so if you're new, well, we're glad that you're here. But if you've been with us in our series, hopefully, I trust this is true, you know who those people are, right? You know those names. Yep, I can see. Well, I'm going to assume I can see many nods, right? <laughs> And uh, they're all, well, mostly kings of Jerusalem. And uh, we know that Zedekiah is on the throne. And so I trust you know right, what's going on in the big picture. Uh, we know that Nebuchadnezzar, so king of the Babylons, uh, Babylonians, so his uh, name there as well, uh, the Babylonians have already come against Jerusalem. They've already defeated the city and battle. And so the exile has taken place. So Jehoiachin, one of the kings mentioned there, and a whole group of people have been taken up to Babylon in exile. Right? So that's already happened. And after that event, king of, uh, sorry, the Babylonians made Zedekiah king. Right? So we're looking at uh, now the city of Jerusalem again and following the fate of the people there. And we see Zedekiah is on the throne but then we have to understand is Zedekiah was put there by the Babylonians, so he kind of served under him, and that started okay. But then he got a bit sick of his uh, Babylonian overlords, so he decided to rebel against them. And says, like, I don't really want to do what you say. And uh, when the Babylonians heard this, they weren't very happy and uh, have come down to sort out this rebellious city of Jerusalem. And so now for a second time, the Babylonians have come to lay siege, sorry, lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. But of course, one of the things we've seen throughout the book of Jeremiah is that this all happens as part of God's judgment upon his people. And why is that? Well, look there, verse 2, we see this assessment of Zedekiah. Verse 2, so he, Zedekiah, and his officers and the people of the land did not obey the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Right now we've been following Jeremiah the prophet uh, through our book. Uh, He is one who speaks the word of the living God. But we see that because the people have rejected God, rejected his word, well this is part of God's judgment upon them that comes through the Babylonians. But there is one other important event that happens that you need to understand to make sense of the chapter. 
And that's what we see in verse 5. See, the Egyptians had come to rescue the city of Jerusalem. So Pharaoh had raised up this army and had come to, uh, to fight off the Babylonians, I guess. And uh, the Babylonians hear of this. And so they leave the city of Jerusalem. Right? They pack up all their tents. They head off to go and fight the Egyptians. So if you just imagine the mood in the city... Right, you've been under siege for some time now with the Babylonians sort of surrounding outside the wall. But you can imagine the great sense of relief right, to see the Babylonians leave and to go off and engage with the Egyptians. And so there's this great sense of relief among the city, but mixed with relief, this sense of anxiety. Right? The big question on everyone's lips, will the Babylonians return? Is this the beginning of freedom for the city of Jerusalem? Or is this just a pause in the final destruction of the city? And you get a sense, I think, of just how desperate people are feeling, particularly the king, with what happens in verse 3. Right? So Zedekiah makes this request to Jeremiah for prayer. Now, I think it's fair to say Zedekiah doesn't really like Jeremiah, right? doesn't like what he's been saying, the words that have come to him through the Lord. And so it's rather a big thing for Zedekiah to request prayer. But I think it shows us just how, well, how desperate people were feeling in the city of Jerusalem, that Zedekiah would make this request. And it is a pretty bold request, I think. Look there, verse 3, he says, Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Right, it's pretty bold saying, hey, Jeremiah, this is, this is our God we're praying to. Right? You and me, we're together. Right? We're on the same team. How about you come to the party and start praying for us? So it's a pretty bold request from the king. But then verse 6 and following, we see the response. Now that the Lord speaks to the king through Jeremiah. And we'll pick it up halfway through verse 7. Watch. Pharaoh's army, which has come out to help you, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. Then the Chaldeans will then return and fight against this city. They will capture it and burn it down. So the clear word from the Lord is that the city will fall. As part of God's judgment on his people, the city of Jerusalem will fall. And so while for the city things are looking pretty grim, well, in this chapter, chapter 37, things also take a turn for the worse for Jeremiah because he ends up being arrested. So look there, this is what we see in verse 11 and what follows. Because if you remember what's going on, right? Previously we had the Babylonian army, they were sort of camped around Jerusalem, stopping anyone from coming and going. But when they left to go and fight the Egyptians, well, now people could leave the city. And so that's what Jeremiah does. You can see verse 12, he goes off to the land of Benjamin. Uh, We're told to claim a portion there, perhaps some kind of uh, land or something like that. Uh, But he heads off, but he doesn't get there. No, he's stopped at the gate by this uh, guard called Irijah. And you can see the accusation that comes in verse 13. He says, you are deserting to the Chaldeans. You're changing sides. You're going over to the enemy. And so he arrests him. Now, Jeremiah denies the charge. He says, no, that's not true. I'm going to Benjamin. I'm going to claim this portion in the land. But he is not believed. 
it seems to be a case of, well, guilty until proven innocent. And so he's handed over to the officers of the city who beat him and place him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe. And we see that for Jeremiah, he stays imprisoned in one way or another until the city falls. But what happens next is is interesting, right? Look there, verse 17, King Zedekiah, right? He's concerned for the faint of the city. He requests a meeting with Jeremiah, right? The second time he's made a request of the prophet. And you can see there, verse 17, he asks, is there a word from the Lord? Right? He's concerned, what will happen? What will happen in the future? And so Jeremiah, having been in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe for many days, is well brought before the king and to ask, is there a word from the Lord? And if you just pause for a moment, just sort of put yourself in the shoes of Jeremiah for a moment. I mean, you imagine there would be some temptation just to, well, just to change the word of the Lord somehow kind of maybe sugarcoat the message maybe just leave out a couple of details say something a little bit more favorable to the king so that he might secure his release so we won't go back to that prison the place where he fears he will die but no what we've seen time and time again in this book is jeremiah's faithfulness He is one who speaks the word of the Lord. So verse 17, is there a word from the Lord? There is, Jeremiah responded. You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. So now for a second time, we see this clear word of judgment against the king because of his rebellion. But again, what happens next is a little bit of a surprise because Jeremiah asks the king, Well, he asks for his freedom. He says, look, I don't deserve to be in prison. You know that. Why not release me? And what's really interesting is the king agrees. Well, sort of, right? And I think we're meant to see the hand of God in this. God protecting and caring for his prophet. Because what Zedekiah does is he says, okay, you don't have to go back to that uh, prison, the house of Jonathan the scribe, but I'm going to give you an upgrade for your room. And so the chapter ends with Jeremiah, still confined, but now confined to the guard's courtyard. And there he's given a loaf of bread. So at least he's got a better chance of surviving. But we see, of course, that God, well, God has cared for and protected his prophets through these things. But Jeremiah's trust in the Lord is about to be severely tested because things go from bad to worse for the prophet. Look there, chapter 38 at verse 1. Now you'll see a long list of names there of these three guys. Uh, so Sheptadah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pasha, Jukul, son of Shelemai, and Pashur, son of Malkajah. There you go. Actually, there's four, I think. Is that right? Yep, there you go. I think. Four. Yeah, anyway, doesn't matter. This group of, uh, group of men, uh, these officials in the city, But see, these men are intent on taking Jeremiah's life. Uh, And why is that? Well, it's because of what Jeremiah has been saying. Or maybe more accurately, what God has been saying through his prophet. So you see that in verse 2. This is what Jeremiah has been saying as he, well, declares the word of the Lord. Verse 2, whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine and plague. But whoever surrenders to the Chaldeans will live. 
So you can kind of understand why these officials are upset with Jeremiah. This is what he's been saying amongst the people. And so hearing what Jeremiah's been saying, they come to the king with a request. Look there, verse 4. So the officials come to the king and they say, this man ought to die because he is weakening the morale of the warriors who remain in the city and of all the people by speaking to them in this way. This man is not seeking the well-being of this people, but disaster. Now, I think we're meant to see the the great irony of those words in verse 4. See, the officials say of Jeremiah, he is not seeking the well-being or the welfare of the city, but he is seeking disaster. But actually, see, the opposite is true. And the reason why this works is because there has been a clear word from the Lord that the city will fall, right? These officials know that. They know the city will fall. And so to stay in the city, to defend it, well, that is what will bring disaster on the people. And so what we see for these officials is they are not sitting under the word of God, But they are standing over it. They know better. They think the city must be defended. And it's because of this, well, great disaster will come on the people. But if you just put yourselves in the shoes of Zedekiah for a minute, right? These officials come with this request. Look, we want to kill Jeremiah. But here's Zedekiah's chance, right? A chance to act with justice as the king of God's people. The chance to protect an innocent man from their murderous plots. But what does Zedekiah do? Well, he says, here is Jeremiah, do whatever you like. And so these officials come up with a particular torturous way of killing Jeremiah. They go to the guard's courtyard where he is. They take him to this cistern. And there they lower him in. Right? So imagine kind of a, a big well, right? a big hole in the ground. And uh, Jeremiah is lowered down and left there to die. And you can just kind of imagine the situation for Jeremiah, right? As he's lowered down into the darkness. As the ropes that lowered him down, as they kind of whip up back to the surface. Well, for Jeremiah, he faces a long, slow, painful death of dehydration and starvation. And you can imagine sort of that uh, feeling of despair for Jeremiah, helpless at the bottom of the system. But one of the great truths that we see throughout the book of Jeremiah in these chapters is that God is powerful to save. Right? He doesn't leave his prophet to die, but instead, amazingly, he rescues him but using a rather strange saviour. Look there at verse 7 with me. We meet this guy, Ebed-Melech. There you go if you're looking for a name of a baby. Ebed-Melech, not a bad name to go by. Uh, But you can see verse 7, he was a Cushite court official employed in the king's palace. Now Cushite, so he's from the land of Cush. That's kind of uh, uh, southern Egypt, northern Sudan, right? But the key point is he was a foreigner. He was not part of, uh, of God's people, but had come to work uh, in the palace there. Now, by this time in the story, the Babylonians have returned, right? They've come back to lay siege to the city again. 
And so it's a desperate time for the city. People are worried. They don't know what the future of the city will be. People are intent on their own survival. Right? It's a dangerous time to be a foreigner in a city. But you see who he works for? He works for the king. Right? The man who's responsible for putting Zedekiah in the hole, that is the boss of Ebed-Melech. And yet what does he do? Right? With great courage, he goes to the king and asks for the life of Jeremiah. And amazingly, and I think we're meant to see God's hand in this, the king agrees. He says, okay, Ebed-Melech, take some men with you and go and pull Jeremiah out of the hole. And again, just put yourselves in the shoes of Jeremiah for a moment. Right? Shoes that have sunk into the mud at the bottom of the system. As you lay there helpless, you know, then you hear you know, words up on the surface. You wonder what's going on. You look up and you see the silhouette face of, of Ebed-Melech. And you hear in his foreign Cushite accent these amazing words. Look there, verse 12. Place these old rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Right? You can just imagine that the great sense of relief to see the, the, the cloth thrown down to him. To see the rope lowered down to him. The rope that will pull Jeremiah out of the mud and the mire and set his feet on solid ground. Right? We see that the Lord is powerful to save. He has rescued his prophets from a, a, a certain death experience. And so Jeremiah is brought to safety. But what happens next is that, well, the king, knowing that Jeremiah has been released, requests a meeting with him. Right? This is the kind of third time that the king has made a request of Jeremiah. And uh, so Jeremiah is brought before the king. And uh, we see this played out for us in verse 14. So verse 14, the king says to Jeremiah... I'm going to ask you something. Don't hide anything from me. So he, the king is asking for a word from the Lord. He's asking what will happen? What will happen to the city? What will happen to me? And it's interesting, it wasn't he says, he says, look, Jeremiah, don't hide anything from me. I mean, I don't think that's been Jeremiah's problem, has it? In fact, Jeremiah has been very clear to declare the word of God to Zedekiah. In fact, two times already he has clearly spoken the word of God. Well, Jeremiah replies to the king, uh, kind of a little bit funny if it wasn't so sad. He says, If I tell you, you will kill me, won't you? Right? You can imagine what's, what's on the forefront of Jeremiah's mind. He's thinking back to that hole that Zedekiah put him in the hole where he was left to die. But then he continues, he says, besides, if I give you advice, you won't listen to me anyway. That's kind of almost funny, isn't it, that the prophet would say it, if it weren't so sad. Right? The, the Lord God, the one true God, who speaks through his prophet Jeremiah, well, the expectation is that the king of God's people will not listen well Zedekiah tries to assure him 
giving a solemn oath. As the Lord lives, who has given us this life, I will not kill you or hand you over to these men who want to take your life. I'm hard to know what Zedekiah's words are really worth, but uh, anyway, that's what he says. And so now in verse 17, for the third time, we see the word of the Lord that comes to the king. Look there, verse 17. This is what the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel says. If indeed you surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then you will live. It's amazing, isn't it? I think this is one of the most amazing words, sorry, verses in all of Jeremiah. But at this last moment, this king Zedekiah is offered life. Right? Just think for a moment. What does Zedekiah deserve? Surely he deserves God's judgment. And we've seen tonight, twice, in fact, the word of the Lord has come to Zedekiah. Remember right back to the beginning, 37 verse 2. Zedekiah did not obey the words of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. See, Zedekiah rightfully deserved to face God's judgment because of the way he had lived. And yet now, in the final days of the city of Jerusalem, before it falls, the living God offers him life. Look there, verse 17 again. If indeed you surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then you will live. This city will not be burned down, and you and your household will survive. It's this wonderful example of God's grace, that he offers Zedekiah what he does not deserve. Zedekiah deserves God's judgment, and yet the living God offers him life. But you notice in the verse there is, well, a response that Zedekiah needs to make. He needs to, well, respond rightly to the word of God. And what that looks like for him is to surrender. He must surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon. And this is made very clear for us, I think, in verse 18, where we see the flip side. Verse 18, but if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city will be handed over to the Chaldeans. They will burn it down and you yourself will not escape from them. So you see, Zedekiah is given a pretty clear choice, right? Option number one, he can surrender and live. Option number two, he cannot surrender, ignore the word of God, and he will face the consequences of God's judgment. That's a pretty clear choice, isn't it? Does he surrender and live or not surrender and die? So what does Zedekiah do? He's the king of a city under siege that is about to fall. What does he do? Well, first of all, he questions whether God can really carry through on his promise. Right, Verse 19, king says, I'm worried about the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans. They may hand me over to the Judeans to abuse me. He's worried about those that have already deserted to the Babylonians. He doubts that God can really save him. But again, in this wonderful expression of God's grace, we see this assurance to the king. Verse 20, they would not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. 
Obey the voice of the Lord in what I'm telling you, so it may go well for you and you can live. Zedekiah is presented a very clear choice. Surrender and live. Don't surrender and die. So what does he do? Well, sadly, he chooses to ignore the word of the Lord. Look there, chapter 39, as we read of the fall of the city. Chapter 39, verse 2. In the fourth month of Zedekiah's 11th year, on the ninth day of the month, the city was broken into. And so as the Babylonians enter into the city of Jerusalem, King Zedekiah and the army, they try and escape but are quickly overtaken by the Babylonians. And there they're brought before the officials. Zedekiah sees his family slaughtered before him. He sees the nobles of the city are slaughtered. And Zedekiah himself is blinded, bound in chains, and taken off into exile. It's tragic, isn't it, to see what happens to Zedekiah. And as to the city, the city that bears God's name, the city of Jerusalem, well, it is burnt to the ground. The walls are pulled down, the houses, the palace are demolished, and the temple, right? We read at the end of Jeremiah, the Babylonians take everything left of value, and that building is burnt to the ground. The building that represented God's meeting place with his people has now gone. And I think it's hard for us to really just understand how how horrific that day was. How sad to see the city fall. But if you look at the book of Lamentations, it's a book full of pain and grief with this lament over the fall of Jerusalem. But while chapter 39 is full of, of darkness and sadness, there are two, two lights that shine out. First of all, we read that Jeremiah is freed. Right? The Lord is powerful to save. And we see that Ebed-Melech, the guy who rescued Jeremiah from the cistern, he too finds freedom. And again, we're reminded that the Lord is powerful to save. But in some ways, these bright lights of the chapter just kind of reinforce the tragedy, don't they, of the the turn of these events. As a reminder that the Lord is powerful to save, how sad to see Zedekiah reject the word of the Lord. There was a time where he could obey, he could surrender and live, and yet he refused to do it. Well, having looked at these events then of uh, 37 to 39, uh, events that happened, well, a long time ago in a place very far away from us, well, the question remains, well, how do these chapters speak to us? How do they relate to our context living in the 21st century? Because in some ways, our situation does seem very different, doesn't it? I mean, we live in a time of relative peace, right? We live in Australia, the the great land of of freedom. It seems very different to a city under siege all those years ago. But we need to really understand our situation clearly. 
And to do that, we need to have God's word on this. We need to see the way God sees us. And what we see in the Bible, very clear to us, is that all people everywhere are in fact slaves to sin. Now, sin describes the way that, well, all of us, by nature, we reject God. We don't want to live his way. We don't want to love other people as we should. And this is a choice that we all make, right? It's true for all of us. And so because of this, we deserve God's judgment, right? The Bible promises there will be a day, the day of the Lord in the future, when Jesus will return and all people will be held to account. And what we have to understand is because of our sin, we deserve to face God's judgment. And so in some ways, our situation is not as different to Jerusalem as we might first think. See, we are waiting for God's judgment to come. And we know that it will. We just don't know when. Right? We don't know when Jesus will return. But one thing is clear. Jesus will return. And we will face the consequences that we would deserve. But of course, it's only as we understand or the reality of sin, as we come to expect God's judgment, that we can understand the wonderful grace that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus. Right? Remember Zedekiah, he deserved to face God's judgment, and yet God showed him grace with the offer of life. And for us, in our situation, we deserve God's judgment, and yet... God has shown us grace in the Lord Jesus. Right? The great thing we know as Christians, as we come to the New Testament, we see well, that Jesus was born into our world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place, taking the judgment that we deserve, that God raised him to life again on the third day to show us that he is the king. And in light of this, we have the wonderful offer of life for all who turn to him. The wonderful promise of the gospel is that all who turn to Jesus can know with certainty that their sin is forgiven. And because of what Jesus has done, they can look forward to the new heavens, the new earth, the place where righteousness will dwell. And so as we look back to the city of Jerusalem, we can be reminded of what we deserve we deserve God's judgment because of our sin. But we can be reminded of the wonderful God that we know, the God of grace who offers us life in Jesus. And so as we read these chapters, we can give thanks to God and praise him for all that he has done for us. But there is another way I think these chapters speak to us. So you think back to Zedekiah for a moment, right? He's in a city that's under siege. He knows that it will fall. And yet he's given that clear choice, right? Remember option one, surrender and live. Option two, don't surrender and die. And we see tragically, Zedekiah refuses the word of God. Well, the thing we have to understand in our own context is we know God's grace in the Lord Jesus, but God's forgiveness does not come automatically. No, the Bible is very clear. We need to respond. 
right? What does that look like? Well, we need to turn to Jesus. We need to put our trust in him. We need to seek to live with him as our king. It's only as we turn to Jesus that we can know the assurance of the gospel, that we can know that our sins are forgiven because of what he has done, right? It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to be brought up in a Christian family. No, each of us need to make our own decision of whether we will turn to Jesus, whether we will come to accept God's offer to us. And so the question to ask is pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, have you responded? Have you come to accept what God offers you in the Lord Jesus? See, for us in our time, there is a time when you can come to accept God's offer. But there is a time that will be too late. So Peter reminds us that the day of the Lord will come. Don't listen to the scoffers. No, God's word is clear. Jesus will return. There will be a day when it is too late to turn to Jesus. Right? We don't know how long our life will last on this earth. We don't know when Jesus will return. And so the question we need to ask well, is, have you, have you come to accept what Jesus has done? Because the great news of the Bible is as we come to Jesus... We see that the Lord is powerful to save. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his death in our place, we can know God's forgiveness and we can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we look at these events in the city of Jerusalem, I hope you've been reminded of God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus. But I hope you've also been challenged to ask the question, well, have you responded? Have you made your own decision to accept what Jesus has done? Well, how about I lead us in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus. Father, we know that because of our sin, we deserve your judgment. Father, you know our hearts. You know the way that by nature and choice, the way that we turn away from you. And Father, we know that rightfully, we deserve to face your judgment. And it's because of this, Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for your grace to us, your kindness to us, that Jesus would come to die in our place. Father, we thank you for your love poured out at the cross and that wonderful promise that as we turn to Jesus, we can know our sins are forgiven and we can look forward to that new heaven and new earth. And so, Father, we pray for us today. We pray that we might come to accept what Jesus has done, that we would put our trust in him and accept him as our king. And Father, we pray for your work in us, that we might know the wonderful promises of the gospel. 
And Father, as we're reminded that it is only in Jesus that people can be saved. We pray that we would be people who are bold to proclaim this good news. And Father, we ask in your kindness that you would use us to bring many into your kingdom for the praise of your glory. Amen.